Hey everyone, it's Ben, and I need to tell you about our sponsor for this show. It's Comedy Bang Bang, the new program from Scott Ackerman on IFC every Friday at 10 p.m. 9 central. It's a terrific show. I uh, hope you watched the premiere last week. I know I did. Scott is great. Uh, the band Reggie Watts, every time it cuts to that guy, it is hilarious. This Friday, uh, Scott's guest is Amy Poehler. Um, she sits down and talks about her feud with Mad Magazine and also her hair. So I don't know why you would miss that. Uh, Reggie premieres a trailer for his new movie, and a scientist comes by to help Scott and Reggie remember their dreams. That is a lot to go on in a mere half-hour program. Uh, once again, it's Comedy Bang Bang every Friday at 10 p.m. 9 central on IFC. It's a really funny show. Uh, there's nobody quite like Scott Ackerman. If you're a fan of BBC comedies like Knowing Me, Knowing You, things like that, you will really enjoy Comedy Bang Bang on IFC every Friday night. Now entering Nerdist.com. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel on the Nerdist Podcast Channel. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Writers talking writing can get pretty exciting. The talk can be enlightening. It's very rarely frightening. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Welcome to the Nerdist Writers Panel Series, an informal chat about writing and the business and process of writing. Each and every panel benefits 826LA, the national nonprofit tutoring program. For more information on 826LA, visit 826LA.org. I'm your moderator, Ben Blacker. Follow me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker. I'm the co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour stage program and the style of old-time radio, available as a podcast on iTunes and via Nerdist.com. Uh, I've written for the series Super Ninjas and Supernatural. Our first panelist joined us last year uh, to talk about her experiences on Leverage and the 4400, among other programs. She's since finished up on Eureka and has joined the staff of Person of Interest. Please welcome back Amy Burke. Uh, one of the credited writers on the Notorious B.I.G. movie, Notorious. <laughs> Our next panelist has been on the writing staff of Southland since its second season. Please welcome Cheo Hodari Coker. <laughs> Hi. Hey, how you doing? What's up? After stints on Nash Bridges and Angel, our final panelist created The Shield, which ran for seven seasons on FX before FX was FX, and had possibly the most satisfying series finale of any long-running series. Can we agree upon that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Better than The Young Sopranos. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> he teamed with David Mamet on The Unit, ran Fox's Lie to Me and FX's Terriers, and created last season's The Chicago Code. He currently has a, as the pilot last resort in contention for the fall. Please welcome Sean Ryan. It's Sean Ryan, everybody. Save <laughs> <Amy> Burke. <laughs> Let's jump in. I have burning questions. Uh, and Sean, I want to start with you. And I want to talk about this new pilot that you have going on. Sorry, everyone who hasn't read it. I want to talk about it. <laughs> uh, can you take us a little bit through the process of this pilot, starting with you know the idea and the pitch and then the development of it? 
Yeah, I, I, I found myself in, uh, in May of last year without, without a TV show in production or on the air for the, for the first time in, in, in 10 years, which uh, uh, was depressing in a way, but was also very liberating. Uh, I'd been working very hard for a long stretch, and, it, and, and it's always hard to come up with development stuff when you're in the middle of production. Uh, so I always would have ideas for things, but, but didn't really have the time to do them. And so Marnie Hockman, who's the woman I work with, uh, at my little company, uh, we just started to meet with different writers. I started to try to think of some ideas of my own. Uh, and then we wanted to hear pitches from people. And, and, and generally we just started with, let's just find some, some writers who, who, who we really like as writers and let's see if they have any ideas. And, uh, one of the guys that came in was this guy, Carl Gajasek, who had not really worked much in TV. He had uh, been on staff for one year on Dead Like Me, the Showtime series, like seven, eight years ago, and really had made his name in features the last few years. And um, he came in, he sat down, and I said, I, I hear you got some ideas you want to talk about. He said, I, actually, I've got five of them. And I said, well, what's the one you're most excited about? And he said, well, the one I'm most excited about sort of involves this, this nuclear sub. And and he didn't really have a lot at that point, uh, but he talked about uh, he'd been a big fan of submarines, of submarine movies, and he talked a lot about uh, what was interesting about British subs and what they do versus American subs. And we just started talking, and and I could tell that there was really something there. And and I said, well, let's let's keep talking about that. And as we talked about it more and more, we ultimately decided uh, to do it together. We pitched it to Sony, where where I'm based now. And um, and we just broke it together. Uh, he's been a great collaborator. Uh, so you pitched without having written it. You didn't go and write it. On no, the, we didn't. Uh, we didn't go and write it. We. Uh, we so got, how much was? Did you guys know about it before you went into pitch? What did that pitch look like? Uh, the pitch was interesting. This is one reason why I always like working with other writers because there's always something. Because I feel like I'm still learning. Uh, that I still have a ton to learn, and so. It's a it's a big sprawling huge swing of a show that will either epically fail, uh, you know, or hit on you know hit on some big level. And, and there are a lot of characters, and it's a complicated show. And those pitches are always very difficult. Uh, and one of the things that 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 Carl did, which I thought was a great idea, was he started printing out character sheets, one page, sort of like a paragraph that just talked about each character. And then three photos on each page of, of in, your, in your dream casting list, you know, yeah. who would you cast as this? So Ryan Gosling is going to play this character and, you know, and, and you sort of, but it gives you sort of visual images. And so what happened, we really practiced this pitch. We first practiced it with Marnie. Then we went into Sony and you know, got some notes from them and honed it. And by the time we went in, we only went to two places. We went to ABC and NBC. And, um, and by the time, we did it. We were, you know, we really had it. You know, no notes. We sort of had the story in our head, and essentially, here are the photos. So, you know, this this is what a this is what a current nuclear submarine looks like. It's bigger than you might think. It's 200 yards long. It's three stories high. It's the size of World War II aircraft carriers. And here's the crew, and you start to meet them. And we start laying these things out. I made a special point of there are different places where you can pitch ABC and NBC, different rooms. I made a big point, and we need a big table. <laughs> to lay these things out. So we got a table and we started pitching. Here are the characters. Here's how this character relates to this character. Here, and you could point and, and it really helped you know, sell the pitch visually. And, and so we, we had good pitches at both places. Uh, fortunate enough that both places wanted it. 
And then, you know, for about five hours, you have the privilege of being the buyer rather than being the seller. (laughs) For the other 364 days and 19 hours of the year, you're trying to sell people stuff. But for that moment, there were two networks that wanted this. And then it allowed me the opportunity to talk with both. Well, if we were to do it here... You know, what's, you know, what would our experience be like? What, how, how do you see this show fitting on your network? Sell, you know, sell to me. Yeah. Can we get specific on that a little bit? Cause this is something that I'm sure a bunch of these guys have faced. Uh, you know, what kind of things do you look for? What kind of questions? Well, I, I mean, frankly, I'd heard a lot of bad things about ABC under the previous regime, under the Steve McPherson regime, uh, you know, over noting, um, just just some bad stuff. And I'd had friends who'd had shows at ABC that swore that they were never going to go back there. And so essentially I told the people at ABC, hey, this is what I've heard. You know, and that wasn't you, but have things changed there? And, and, and how can you assure me that things will have changed if I come? You know, uh, so you sort of get them on the record. Now, that doesn't mean they won't, you know, throw that out the window the moment they they have you down. But, uh, you know, at ABC, that's, you know, there's a lot of, I don't use this word in a bad way, soft, but there's a lot of soft, female-friendly sort of things. This has what I hope are some very good female characters, but it also has... You know, it has a nuclear submarine and it's got some warfare and it's got got some action to it. I wanted to hear from them how that fit at ABC. You know, had questions for for NBC, you know, you know, their network was in flux. Bob Greenblatt, who's running that now, he and I had had actually known we grew up in the same hometown, very coincidentally, Rockford, Illinois. And so I'd met him, you know, a few years previously, and we had known each other. Well, what, you know, what do you intend to do with NBC? Why would this show be a good fit there? You know, so, so you have this brief, brief window to be able to have a modicum of control over those kinds of things, and, and you just squeeze it for all it's worth. And then how did the writing go? I mean, obviously, you're used to writing with others having been on staff and run staff, but how did, so how did that writing work? Yeah, a lot of times I write on my own, but, but in series I've often shared scripts with writers, especially on The Shield, um, mostly because I would always send writers to the set of The Shield, and if I wrote solo scripts, um, I didn't have time to go to set, and so it was easier for me to co-write with somebody and send that person. So I'd done it before, and I always like to break it down by usually by stories. It didn't quite work that way, because there's one big story that's a thread, so um, it's a five-act structure. The first two acts are longer than the final three acts. So for the most part, he wrote the first two acts. For the most part, I wrote the last three acts, except for there was one little storyline that I did the whole thing for and one little storyline that he did the whole thing for. And so we sort of broke up that way. And then um, I let him do it first. I, I let him write his pages first since you know, so I could see the first 20-some pages or 30 pages uh, and get a sense of the characters as he heard them in his head mm-hmm. and that helped me write my pages mm-hmm. as well and then and then I did some you know different things as well and then we exchanged pages and and you never know how that's going to work you never mm-hmm. have, know you know but I think the feature world had worn him down <laughs> <laughs> some uh, in terms of that and I, I just like to be open I uh, you know for whatever success I've had I never act like I know everything that my opinion is always right so if he had a better idea for you know for a scene or for some lines of my stuff great which is i mean that's something we hear about often on these panels even just in writers rooms or whatever but it's you can't be precious about this stuff and the best idea has to win uh and cheo i think you can speak to that uh features world a little bit 
Well, uh, well features are no fun. I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, well, it's from a writing's perspective, it's not as fun because you have no control, and literally, what the crew is going to eat that day is really of more importance than what your opinion of what you wrote is. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, and it's. I mean, but when you're dealing with that many people on on a set, it's kind of true. It's like, sure. yeah, this is great that you know that you came with some of the uh, with these ideas and you're here, but like, what? When's two o'clock coming? You know, <laughs> so I mean. Film is ultimately a director's medium. The thing that's great about, about television is not only as a writer do you get to collaborate, um, but at the same time, you're involved all the way through. And um, at the same time, because of the budgets of television, every decision you make, you have to own up to. So say you're just in your underwear at 2 o'clock in the morning writing something and you, and you decide that it has to be a blue Mustang, you get to the production meeting and someone will say, well, we only have a green Mustang and really we have to give it back by, by tomorrow, so... But we have this car, this Dodge, for, for, for free because it got thrown in. Can this scene work with the Dodge? And so you have to barter and you have to make these things work. And then you just get to be involved. And it's really, it really makes it a lot more fun, I think. Tell me about uh, your experience on Notorious. How did you become involved with that? And uh, how, was, you know, how was it representative of the feature world as a whole, if well, at all? Well, I mean, <laughs> that, that pause you're seeing is, like, how much of the truth do I really tell? <laughs> okay. Oh, all no, of no, it. No. We, we edit these. I <laughs> yeah. can take out anything no, it's, you it's, want. It's, it's all these guys. No, it's, 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 it's all good. It's all good. I mean, well, for me, it's, it, the story goes all the way back to Brooklyn, really, because I knew Biggie. And um, the first time I interviewed him was actually, I want to say, two weeks after Ready to Die came out. We were on his stoop um, in Brooklyn. He, he lived at 226 St. James Place. And, like, we're there doing the interview, and, like, couple members of Junior Mafia walk up and wanted to borrow a gun to rob somebody and then he acted like he didn't know where the gun was. Um, and then the last time I interviewed Biggie was literally I want to say 36 hours before he was killed. And actually had he called me back because I was doing a cover story for Vibe. You know, usually when you do that kind of story you're embedded with, with the artist. Had he called me back I would have been in the car that night. Um, and it was one of those things where Afterwards, all these books came out um, about Biggie and about Tupac and about the murder investigation. And some of the stuff was interesting, I mean, really interesting, because, you know, that murder that happened here dovetailed into Rampart and went into a lot of crazy directions. But what was lost was who he was as a person. Because it's one thing to listen to Biggie's records, another thing to actually sit with him and talk with him, and you just realize how funny he was and just his personality. And it was completely, well, the story I always tell is that. Biggie's personality was actually that of Heavy D, because you know Heavy D's like kind of this warm and cuddly guy on his records. But when you met, but when I, every time I was with Heavy, Heavy was always kind of gruff and kind of you know one way. Whereas Big, you would expect to be like standoffish and like his photos, and he was just like a teddy bear. And so that was one of the things that was funny was that was lost. And so because I had so many hours for tape and really got his personality, that led to me writing a book called Unbelievable, The Life, Death, and Afterlife of Notorious B.I.G. That in turn, once the book um, was there, his managers, um, Mark Pitts and Wayne Barrow, and also Biggie's mom, uh, Valletta Wallace, they really dug the book. And that led to me being attached, to, once we set it up, to write um, the first draft of the screenplay, mm-hmm. which went well, but it was just like hurry up and wait, and then the strike happened. And was then, it and was it specifically for a studio? Someone it who was bought for, the for, life for, for Fox Searchlight. Book rights. Um, you know, we went to Fox Searchlight. We went to I'm trying to think where else we went. I think Paramount, and then it ultimately came down, and we, the deal was closed at Fox. 
there's some stories behind that, but I, that, that's a whole other sure. whole other thing. <laughs> but um, but as far as the writing of it, uh, how did you delve in? How did you decide what you know what piece of the story to tell? Well, it's, it's funny. It was, it's ironic telling the story at, at a comic book store. For me, um, I always saw Biggie. Um, okay, one of the one of the best stories Biggie told me was that. What he used to do, that's actually the very first scene that I wrote for the movie, but that's actually in the movie, is he said that he would leave home, you know, wearing like his, the clothes that his mother bought him, and then he would go up on the roof, and then he would change into like all the, the fly gear that he, that he bought from his drug dealing exploits that he hid from his mother. And his mother never really believed that her Christopher was, out, was somebody different on the street. So in my mind, I saw her as Aunt May. I saw him as, you know... Biggie was Spider-Man, Christopher Wallace was Peter Parker. And so he, he always, like, because he was somebody completely different on the street. And so her whole perspective on his life was, oh, not my Christopher. My Christopher wouldn't rob somebody on a train. My Christopher wouldn't do this. My Christopher wouldn't do that. And then when she found his drugs, I mean, he had to say, yeah, ma, that, that's, that's me. And so that's to me, like, you know, at least in the, in, like in, in the Amazing Spider-Man stuff, there was decades where Aunt May didn't, I mean, even though I thought, I thought it was funny that Ben just kind of, you know, ended that um, in terms of her actually getting to know that he really was. But what was cool is that I would just go about these scenes thinking, okay, he's living one way, she sees him another way. So the tension comes from when she reconciles the fact that this person that she's so afraid of is actually her son. How does she really deal with that? And then once he's dealing with that, how is he dealing with the fact that, I mean, this is what every rapper does is, you know, dealing with the, the split between your street persona and your real persona. And how do you balance that? You know, what's real, what isn't real? And so um, that was just kind of the thing that no matter what scene I was, I was, doing, I was working on or, or perspective, I always kept that in mind. It's a, it's a fascinating way to approach character, too, to have this thematic or, or very specific element in mind because it will inform every scene. It's not something we talk about a lot here, you know, how to approach a character within the scene. Well, well that, that and, and the movie Gandhi, strangely enough, was another really? influence. <laughs> well, only I say that because one of the first things that Wayne Barrow said is that we have to start the movie with Biggie's murder. Mm-hmm. And we want to start the Peterson Automotive Museum. We want him to, his character to get shot in the first five minutes of the movie. And so I was like, okay, well, it's like the Titanic. I mean, you know what's going to happen. So, like, <laughs> where, where's the dramatic tension? And then I remembered being a kid. And seeing Gandhi and remembering, like, the, you know, the, you watch that movie and the first five minutes he's assassinated. And then the next thing you know, he's being thrown off a train. He's wearing a suit. And you're like, wait, Gandhi wore clothes? And he, he, had the, he, was, a, he was a lawyer? And, and, and then you get into this whole story about who it is he was and, and, and the movement and everything else. And so then when you get to the end and then you, and you realize that you know the assassin and you know what he was trying to accomplish – all of a sudden, you know that you can't change this ending, and you're just screaming at the screen, like, I want this to have a different ending. And so when he dies the second time, it's just really devastating. And so that was kind of the same thing, we, you know, even though I, it's kind of strange to hear Notorious being influenced it by Gandhi. Absolutely that, that was kind sense, of the, though, that inevitable yeah. uh, feeling. That's really cool. Uh, and before we move on, um, just quickly, tell us about, you know, you, so you turned in the script to Fox, and did it go through the usual uh, horrors of feature films where it was oh, yeah. um, taken away, you were fired, rewritten, all of that? Nah, not quite fired. It's like, you know, you, they scream at you, you write, you know, like literally my, my first children, my, I, I have three kids, and my twins were born, I think four days after they were born, I was in New York doing other research. I wrote the script, the first draft of the script in about a month and a half, screaming at me every day, where's the fucking script, where's the fucking script? So you get it in. Then you don't hear anything for about four or five months. 
you finally get another draft with their notes. You do that. And then I didn't hear anything for, what, two years. <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and they don't call you and say, oh, thank you. You just don't hear anything. Then all of a sudden, it's called, yo, we're making a movie, son. <laughs> you know? And then, okay, you know, Reggie Rock, like, he had a different perspective on the movie. And so the thing was, was that his stuff was good. My stuff, I think, still held up. And we agreed that we'd share the credit because it really reflected both of us. And um, so it actually was, was really amenable. And then it, the strangest thing was actually being on set um, and actually watching them recreate the, the murder. And that was really surreal because... Um, it was the exact same location. It's right, at the, right in front of the Peterson Automotive Museum, corner of um, Fairfax and Wilshire. And so it was like almost like being like on a holodeck where you, you're, you're like there and you're just watching this entire thing. And, you know, Jamal, who played um, Biggie, he's so much like the real guy. So it was kind of eerie just kind of hearing him talk. And it was to the point where it was so really hard to be there because it was really like watching him get killed. And the other thing I'm, I'm left with, which is ironic because of the whole, you know, I keep thinking of the shield and rampart. There's almost, when you're out there watching it happen, there's almost no way that that whole thing could have happened or there's no escape route. So the only way that, in my mind, some of the stuff could have happened is if some of the people there were related to or, or cops. Because there's, there, there's no way after you shoot to just get away very easily. And so it's like if you get deep into that whole investigation, there's a lot that's just left on the table. Is it in it the book? It was limb. I saw it. Is it in your book? Um, the book dealt with the murder investigations, but if I was ever going to do a sequel to the movie end of the book, it would get deeper into all the different theories. Because it's, it's, it's like JFK. It's like Daily Plaza out there. It's, just all, it's, all, it's all over the place. Neat. Uh, Amy. Yes. When last we left you, uh, you were coming off of Eureka. I think you guys were finishing up or, or near to done. Uh, yes. And now you're on Person of Interest. Tell us about making that move. Uh, there, it's a very different show, and you're a person I know who, you know, you like comedy. <laughs> and Person of Interest is not a light drama. <laughs> It, it has levity in it, it but is, it's it, not a light drama. It got drama. to be when I, after I joined the show. Well, tell us a little bit about that. Um, by the way, Eureka, the season that we worked on um, when I was here last year, premieres this coming Monday. <laughs> Good move, so, sci-fi. Uh, so, yeah. And, and my um, work on Person of Interest has aired before all of the stuff that I've now um, shot and, and edited last year. So, you know, um, TV... Also has a little bit of the feature side sometimes, especially the cable. Um, how did I make the move? Oh, well, um, when Eureka um, was going down, it's around the same time as um, development season. And so I went out and I started uh, pitching a pilot around. And it was getting a lot was of... Was this a, a network pilot? It was a network pilot. Um, it was set up with um, Carl Beverly and Sarah Timmerman. Oh. And... Um, and then, um, and you know, we just had just started, you know, going around and pitching it. And I heard that there was another concept that was very similar set up at NBC, um, which was also sort of mine was like a Jekyll and Hyde, um, like a, with but with a law enforcement angle as opposed to the medical angle, which is the one that's on NBC. But um, it, it sort of like felt like I was competing with that in, in some of the pitch meetings, and and at the same time, I got a call from Sci-Fi saying, um, hey, you want to write a miniseries? <laughs> and, um, and I was like, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm pitching this pilot. And they're like, it's guaranteed money. Do you want to write a miniseries? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, I will write a miniseries for you. Um, Have you written anything like that before? No. How was it? Um, it was very interesting. 
Um, the notes process was extremely interesting. It was, but they did they have the idea that they brought to you, or did you yeah, pitch them it was, an idea? Yeah, it was it was an idea. Um, I could probably talk about it because I think it's dead. Um, because <laughs> Congratulations! I, been, I, yeah, yeah. I did what I could. Um, no, um, it was a it was a 2012 miniseries, but they wanted something. Um, they wanted something that was a little more um, national treasure, sort of like investigative, kind of fun um, aspect to it. Um, and it was also a backdoor pilot. So you know uh, how the end of the world translates into a, a, a brand new making show um, was something I had to deliver, which was very interesting. Um, but I didn't think about it. Um, but it, it was on a tight schedule too. Right? It was well. That was the problem. I was brought on so late in the yeah. process. I mean, you know, I was brought on. It was around like October, November of last year. And in order to shoot this, like, it would have to be written by, like, Thanksgiving. <laughs> and I was like, you understand that this is, like, six hours of material, and you want the first night next week? Yes. That's what, basically what they said. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, I wrote, I wrote the first night of the miniseries, and, um, and, you know, I went through some notes process, and then I, I sent it to... The LA sci-fi office and they're like great we love this we're sending it to New York and then New York read it and was like I thought we were getting a Roland Emmerich movie what is this national treasure shit so, um, and so the next week I joined person of interest <laughs> no yeah I left the, I left the miniseries um, but, but so after writing we can discount the miniseries for the time yes, being but yes. after writing Eureka which I know you yeah. love you really loved being there yeah uh, the comedy thing yeah I mean it was so light uh, and fun I th- I, it seems like it came sort of easily to you yeah uh, was it a challenge to write this more procedural show um not really I mean because I've, I've written procedural before yeah. um and and Eureka was actually um kind of a, a step more in the comedy direction than I had been in a while. I mean, I actually started out writing half hours for Nickelodeon, mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm used to writing comedies too. But, um, but you know, when I went in and met on Person of Interest, like, one of the things that they stressed to me is that they wanted to add a little bit of humor to the show. They wanted to add a little more character to the characters, so to speak, because um, they were, you know, I guess in the beginning a little one-dimensional, perhaps. Um, and so, you know, and they, they, when they called me in, they're like, this is, you know, this is why we like you for it. And, you know, like, we want to, you know, bring in, um, you know, some, some humor and some life a little bit to the show. And I was like, I am more than happy to do that. I love Michael Emerson. <laughs> and Jim Caviezel is not bad to look at. And Trashy B. Hinton is pretty freaking awesome. Um, so uh, I was I was on board, and uh, and you know my first episode um, was basically the most comedic of all the episodes of the show during season one. So um, well, I put Michael Emerson on ecstasy. I mean, so it was kind of awesome. Did you guys see that one? Was, yeah, thank you. Was that something you had pitched? Um, kind of. Really? That's great. <laughs> no, it was the, but it means they were open to it. Yeah, it was is, the... Um, they didn't lie. <laughs> I was assigned an episode day one. My, really? my, the wow. day I started, I was assigned the very next episode. Because I, I had pitched a couple ideas um, prior to starting on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, I started, like, right after the new year. But, I like, over Christmas, I was, like, you know, furiously typing and reading and catching up and all that stuff. And 
Um, I had sent them like three story ideas. They're like, you know, and day one, they're like, do that one. Mm. <laughs> I was like, okay. Great. So yeah, no, it turned out it turned out great. I'm really proud of did it. Did you? So. Can I, I? We can talk about this now, maybe, and I can cut it out if you want. But were you? Did you watch? <laughs> the, did you watch the show before going into talk to them? I had seen every episode. Yes. Oh yeah. It was okay. one of my favorite. So you were shows. well prepared. Yes, for absolutely. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it happens. It. It's a great show. Yeah. I'll, yeah, I'll take out the part about me saying we'll take that out. <laughs> uh, Sean, let's go back to you uh, again. This is a burning question, and one of the one of the main reasons I wanted to have you here uh, this past year. Um, I talked to someone who worked with you at Angel, who said that guy was a great writer. He's a great guy, but he knew. He had this thing that he wanted to make, and he was going to go make the shield. Uh, tell us about not true, I would say. But really? Well, I I had uh, here's how the shield came to be. I, I apologize for anyone who's who's heard this story, but I I had been writing comedy and drama for a few years, and and um, and I got hired to write a sitcom pilot, just a blind sitcom pilot deal because they had read a sitcom pilot I. That I'd written that hadn't been made, but got close to being made, and they liked it. And for about eight months, we could not agree on what it should be, and, and we we're going back and forth on all these ideas, you know. And we couldn't we couldn't work something out. And then finally, Lisa Berger, who was running that company at the time, said, "Well, you know, what what do you want to write? Because we, you know, they've been ba- they've been coming back saying, well, Fox wants to do a college show, you know, in a dormitory, which they eventually did undeclared, and the WB wants to do a you know kung fu show, and they eventually did Black Sash. So they were right on with their intel about what these networks wanted to do, but <laughs> but I could never sort of turn that into a, you know a coherent pitch, and so I, I, I said, well, let me think about what I want to do. It's the first time in nine months I've really thought of that, <laughs> rather than sort of. You know, uh, tried to predict where the networks might want to go, and and um, I've been going on a couple of police ride-alongs up in San Francisco while I was on staff of Nash Bridges, and I'd been seeing things that were entirely inappropriate for the show Nash Bridges, <laughs> and and, um, and so right, I worked at Nash for three years, and I left for Angel, and and right before I left Nash, I started working on the script, and I finished it before I even wrote my first script for Angel, and so I I wrote the script for The Shield, and I never thought anyone would ever make it. So when I arrived at Angel, it's not like I thought, oh, this is going to get made somewhere. Mm. Um, no, I, I was just desperately trying to succeed at Angel. Angel was a show that I really admired. Um, Where, but how, I, long, how far into Angel? It was season two I was there, so it had only been on for a year. But I had interviewed with Joss um, three years earlier uh, for Buffy. Um, I had two big meetings. I had Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and I had Nash Bridges. And <laughs> And and when I got those meetings, I had to catch up on both shows. I hadn't really watched either. And and I watched Buffy, and they'd only made like an eight-episode first season, I think, or something like that. And I was really, really impressed with that show. And I thought, well, let me give this. And I watched Nash Bridges, and, and it was a different kind of show. It wasn't exactly my cup of tea, but, but I saw things that I enjoyed about. I saw things, and, and I desperately wanted a job. But, but I definitely wanted, <laughs> I wanted the Buffy job. Right. And I went in. And um, and uh, I remember that I remember that I made a mistake with Joss. Where Joss, the word penultimate came up, and he, was, and 
he was trying to remember the, the definition for pen, penultimate. And I remember very confidently telling him what I thought was and then getting home realizing it was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I was like, oh, I'm not, I'm not going to get the job because of this. And in fact, I did not get the job. And, it, <laughs> and I don't know what it, what, it, what it was. But it actually turned out to be the absolute best thing in the world for me because I ended up having great bosses at Nash. It was a really learning environment. And then three years later, I was like... The guy that I think got away, because then Joss, the next year, like the writer that they hired instead didn't work out, and so mid-season he called my agent. My agent was like, no, he, he got a job unavailable. And then they called again at the end of the year, but my contract had been renewed, and same for the following year. And so all of a sudden I think I became this guy that like got away for Joss. And, but having said that, so then I got an angel. And, but, I, but I was a little bit of an outsider on that show. I was not a comic book kind of guy. Joss would do these Shakespeare readings at his house on weekends. I wasn't really invited. <laughs> these other writers on the show would get invited. There I was a lot of, like, Whedon people. There were a lot of well, Buffy people on yes, the show. Yes, yes. Right? The, 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 the whole joke was Buffy people could come down and, yeah. and write Angel stuff, but Angel people didn't go up and write <laughs> Buffy stuff. We were on the ground floor, Buffy was on the second floor, and, and so there was a little bit of a stepchild, you know, sort of feel to the whole thing but i was also one of the few people there with with a kid i had a kid at that point we my wife and i just had a baby and 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 i didn't read comic books and so i was a little bit of an outsider and it it took me a little bit of time to to figure out that show i don't know that i ever fully did but but uh i didn't think oh my god i've got this script that's going to launch fx or anything like that i I honestly thought this will be my spec when Joss fires me. <laughs> is is what I thought was going to be. So then, so what happened? It got into the right hands. Someone responded um, to it. Well, this the little mini studio I'd written it for, Fox TV Studios, is in the same corporate umbrella as FX, and they had learned that FX was, you know, looking to break into drama and do something different. They want, and they gave the script. Uh, to to Kevin Riley and Peter Rigori over there, and um, and literally the first I ever heard about it because this was maybe four months after I turned it in, and I I turned in one Angel script, and I was working on my second or third even at that point, and and I got a call. FX is seriously thinking about making your pilot script as a pilot, and that you got to go in and meet them. <laughs> I, it was just it was like. There were like three steps missing in between that. You know I mean, it was just like shocking. Wow. And I thought, well, this can't be real. Uh, and here's when they want to meet you. And I had to think up some excuse for like, you know, to get out of the office. I, I didn't want to. S- <laughs> I wouldn't say I lied, but I didn't tell the whole truth about where I was going to be, you know, for this couple hour period. And I remember going there and sitting down with Kevin Riley and not exactly knowing what was going to happen. And and he was like, um, listen, we we want to make this pilot but but only if you're available to executive produce it wow. and be in charge of it <laughs> and he was like uh are you up to that and every voice inside my head said you don't know what you're doing <laughs> you are not up to that you are not capable of that and and so, and then i heard myself say yes of course <laughs> Wow. But I, I had the thorny issue that I was still under contract at, at Angel. And uh, this is where the story gets, gets good and mushy. Because, uh, so it took some time, took a couple months then to get the deal making in place and everything. And I was still working at Angel. And, and, uh, and then finally the phone call came. Okay, they are going to greenlight this pilot, but you have to extricate yourself 
from Angel. And wow. if you can't, they're not going to make it. And so I was like, okay. And so like my heart's beating me. And I go into David Greenwald's office. David was the co-creator of Angel and the very, very strong number two on that show. And, uh, and I said, uh, I said, uh, listen, I have this opportunity. <laughs> I didn't go looking for this. I just wrote this script. Now somebody wants to make it. And, um, and they'll only make it if you guys let me on my contract. And, and, and he said, um, do, you, do you think it's good? And I, I, I really thought about that for a few seconds. And I said, I think it has a chance to be pretty good. And he said, and then if any of you met David, he's very, very honest. He's like, well, we've really been having a debate here whether to bring you back or not next year. <laughs> <laughs> You know, you did real good on the first script. The second one wasn't so hot. This and I was just getting ready to write. I, I wrote a solo one. Then I split three different scripts, co-wrote three different scripts. And I was about to write a solo one as my fifth writing attempt. He said, well, well, would you be able to finish this? Oh, yeah. No, I'll finish the script. I'll get it in. And I'd have to be done by this date. And he said, well, listen. He goes, um, he goes when... Um, he goes, when, when my old partner and I created Profit, which was a show on Fox, mm-hmm. um, they, my partner was on um, The Adventures of Lois and Clark at the time. And our pilot got picked up, and they wouldn't let him go off to make the pilot. And, and we, we always thought that that was the suckiest thing in the world for them to do. And we always said we'd never stop anyone mm-hmm. from having an opportunity like that. So Go. And uh, and I said thank you very much, and we went. And then I turned in my last Angel script, and they really loved it. <laughs> and I remember him grumbling afterwards. You're lucky you didn't ask me after <laughs> you turned the script in. Uh, but that's that's how the shield got made, and how uh, how I spent. You know, if you look closely at the credits, I'm only listed as a co-producer for 19 of those 22 episodes. Because the other thing was, he was like, "We'll let you go, but but you got to give us the." You know the budget break by you know we'll pick a sort of period here where you know you'll have the show. So I saved them some money that they didn't have to pay me for the last few episodes, and uh, and it it ended up costing me money. I mean, the, what I got paid to produce the Shield pilot was maybe a fifth of what I would have made on Angel. And and my agent at the time really questioned whether it was the right move or not. And uh, well, FX was nothing yeah. at the time. So how do, you, how do you have that conversation with your agent? Uh, well, we just talked about it. Mean, I mean, there were a lot of conversations. He and my manager and myself just about you know, what the options were. And I'd worked for three years on Nash. It's not like I had put away a ton of money, but, but for the first time, I'd, you know, I'd made money for a few years and I knew that I could survive for a year, year and a half. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to take the chance on myself. And I really did love that script. I loved the pilot script. And I, and I thought, well, what am I out here doing if I'm not going to, you know, why, why do this to try to fulfill someone else's vision? I mean, that's great. If you can be on staff, I loved, I loved all three years at Nash. I loved my year at Angel. But, but if I have a chance to do my own thing, why would I turn that down? And I have to have faith that if it doesn't work out, that I can staff somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just briefly, uh, when you set out to write that pilot, uh, it is a serialized show. What did you know about the show itself? Nothing. Cause, really? uh, nothing, because I didn't pitch it. So it wasn't like, hey, here's the pilot, and yeah. here's the series, and here's where Vic Mackey's going to go. It was a pilot script that, I mean, really, it's a bit, it's a bit of a trick. 
that script because in some ways it reads like a regular kind of cop show, mm-hmm. uh, you know, albeit maybe a little rougher in the language. And, you know, and it's really the sort of, without giving away too much, it's 10 years for God's sake. So there's spoilers, <laughs> other spoilers well, after 10 right. years. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a shooting at the end of the pilot that I think is what gets a lot of people's attention and yeah. sort of, you know, sort of says, well, this is not your typical cop show. Um, but really that's just a trick. You know, I, you know, it's, and, and really that came from, I remember I had been watching uh, five years earlier, however many years earlier, I'd been watching, um, Donnie Brasco, the movie. And it's very well made, but I, but about a third of the way through, I could have, I could tell like where the movie was going. Like, okay, I, I, I sort of get, you know, Giant Depp's gonna survive, things aren't gonna go well for Pacino, <laughs> you know, the whole sort of thing. And, and I remember thinking, going, <sighs> God, this would just be a much more interesting movie if they walked into a room and Al Pacino turned around and put a bolt in Johnny Depp's head midway through. Almost psycho style like Janet Lee, you know, where you yeah. think you're following one thing. And I always remembered that. Mm. And so when I sat down to write the Shield pilot, it was just a trick of I'm going to do the thing that they didn't dare do. Well, that was based on a true story, but but I'm going to do this thing <laughs> just because I think it's such a cool twist. Right. And I never thought, what will episode two be? <laughs> wow. Until after the pilot was made and Kevin Riley said, we want you to put together a document of what the show's going to be. Oh, maybe that's something I should think about. <laughs> that is ridiculous. That is, every, every successful long-running series uh, creator we've had in here has had that story. <laughs> I didn't plan. <laughs> well, you, you, you have some idea. I will say this, that I put together a very solid plan for the first season after the pilot was made and before they picked it up. Okay. So I don't think you can go into that first season and and have high hopes of being successful if you don't have some idea of what you want to do. And in fact, I just unearthed that document that that I did and I looked back through it and we didn't use everything, but we used a lot of stuff and 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 it was helpful. Um Cheo, let's talk for a moment um about Southland. Okay. Uh I have heard some great stories uh about how that show is put together and you know how you guys will ride along or you guys mm-hmm. will consult. Uh, how did you get involved with the show? Where were you? You know, were um, you a feature guy who was yeah, well, I, looking I for was, TV work? I was um, at Imagine Entertainment. I was working on this script about lowriding, or the movie Lowrider. And um, before that, I'd written a spec for Antoine Foucault called Greenlight. And the, the thing about that spec was it was set in the hip-hop world, but actually it was based on an experience I had with the rap artist The Game. Um, I'd written a cover story about him for Vibe, and um, really the thing that got him signed or got everybody buzzing about him before he made his record was he had this freestyle called 200 Bars and Running, where he just freestyled over Dr. Dre's deep cover beat for like 10 minutes, 12 <laughs> minutes straight. And um, there was one of the stories in that rap, he basically talks about a murder. And it, that's the thing, of the, the, what little I knew about police procedure at the time was like, wait a minute, murder's never closed, so if this really happened... And he's giving away all these details because it's cool in a rap. Like, what if this was really real? What if this rap got him in trouble? And so Antoine had a, sto- had a story he always wanted to do about the hip-hop world. And so I kind of combined both stories and added a police element. And so it, ultimately Greenlight was about a rapper who, has a tr- who basically is kind of faking it, has this traumatic event happen to him, years later writes a rhyme about it, and then has both deal with both the street side and, the, and, and also 
the the murder happens to be this one murder that's always haunted this cop and how both sides converge and everything else. But my luck for writing that script, even though I never got paid for it, was that um, I never sold it, was that at the time that Ann Bitterman got inundated with all these different, you know, spec practices and spec, you know, whatever procedure was out at the time that Southland got picked up, um, my script as a writing sample really stood out because it was different. And um, she dug it, met with her, got along with her, and then eventually met with, you know, Andrew Stern and then um, Chris Selak. And then I guess eventually, I didn't meet John until I actually, John Wells until I was hired. And then got in the room and then you're in the room. And being in the room for the first time, coming from features and never having done television, is scary. I mean, because you, you come into the room and it's like, you know, you've got John Wells here, you've got Anne, you've got um, um, Mitch Burgess and Robert Green, you know, from the, the, the Sopranos writing team. They got like a gazillion Emmys. You know, Diana Sone, David Graziano. And, um, and you're sitting there like, why am I in this room? What am I doing? You know, and you just say, okay, well, let me just come up with something. Well, but, and, part <laughs> and, of you- and then you just start pitching and then you get more comfortable and then really it's like, it was almost like it's probably the closest thing to journalism because mm-hmm. it's kind of the collaborative nature of it and just throwing things out and you, you just can't be afraid to pitch. I mean, there have been plenty of times I, I've pitched stuff and it's fallen flat on my face and John, is, he's kind of, he, he, he has the, the perfect, I, I never play poker with John Wells because he has the perfect poker face. You know, he has a little <laughs> smile and you don't really know if, if anything works until he actually makes a button on the board. And then um, you build from there. How, how is the show broken? Um, it's just, it's weird. It's, well, I mean, because part of it is test. I mean, some stuff we literally get from what happens in the newspaper. Some stuff we'll, we'll get from these ride-alongs and you'll talk to cops and they'll give you stories. Sometimes we'll bring cops in and we'll interview them. And, um, you know, for a sandwich, can you tell us the most horrific moment of, of your life? And, you know, so we can exploit it. <laughs> and, and half, and half the time what happens is that they, they just want, I mean, cops, the thing that happens with cops is that they really don't have anybody to talk to about the things that they go through. And so f- when you do these interviews, a lot of it is so cathartic. They just end up giving you these things. And they usually think that, you know, this great shootout that they were in, that's, that's what you're going to find interesting. But actually what's more interesting is, you know, the conversations they had, you know, with their wife or ex-wife or with their kid or, you know, were, were they afraid? Did something happen? You know, or even when you're in the ride-alongs, just, you know, the back-and-forth banter between partners. Mm-hmm. I mean, police work, or at least when, you, when you're on a ride-along, you, you really don't want anything to happen. I mean, you go and think, okay, it'll be great if something happens, but then when it happens and the car's going and the siren's <laughs> on, you're like, oh, shit, I hope nothing happens. <laughs> so, <laughs> so a lot I, of- I interviewed a writer once who'd been on a ride-along and shot some in exchange. <laughs> And she was like ducking down at the bottom of the floor. Uh, okay. Was that the one with Bob Deemer? I don't remember. I just remember in the interview going, oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you want to go on ride-alongs until you don't want to go on ride-alongs. Because yeah. well, there's this famous story. One of the guys that really helps us is, is Bob Deemer. He was um, consulting because of um, Chick Daniel um, on the show Robbery Homicide, the Michael Mann show. That's the one I heard about. Yeah, yeah Robbie Homicide. And yeah. Deemer, who's, who's infamous in the department, is, I think, the only – cop that ever took a writer on a ride-along and, then got, and they got into a shootout. And it was this whole thing that happened. You know, So you, you think that you want something to happen, but ultimately it's just better that you just go out to dinner or, or you know, but, you know, 
that you, you go to Denny's and you talk and then things happen. Yeah, I found myself in Chicago, you know, researching for Chicago Code on a ride along. And all of a sudden there was a chase and there was some guy who had shot somebody. And, and, and we're all converging on this, you know, sort of big parking lot with trucks and, you know, sort of a, a warehouse yard sort of thing. And we're the third car to arrive. And all of a sudden we're out the door. And and all of a sudden I'm looking under trucks for like this guy and and I'm like I'm only holding a flashlight. <laughs> yeah. What do I do if I find him? At which point I really took about four steps back. Well, really let the real guys take the lead. You you can really lose yourself. Well, because I remember one ride along we were on. It was the first time I'd ever gone on one, and you know um, the guy Rudy. I can't remember Rudy's last name right now, but um, put on new bulletproof vest and you go out and he's like okay look my backup gun is in this bag by your feet if anything happens don't get on the radio don't call anybody just pick up the gun here's how you do it and shoot and you're like you can is, is he serious is he joking and I mean, he, I mean, he was probably joking but still he, he wasn't laughing and you know the thing was was we kind of go around all night because it was if we were in Van Nuys division we were just just riding around nothing happened until I want to say we were just getting ready to go back, and it must have been about 5.30 in the morning. All of a sudden, it was all points, and we're getting in the middle of this chase, and we're all like seven or eight cars chasing this one car. And they converge, and they get guns out. It's a hot situation, helicopters, the whole thing. And then they you know, keep yelling at them in English and Spanish, get out of the car. And, and then eventually the guy gets out of the car, and there was no one in the car, and he was so drunk he didn't even remember driving the car. And they were all happy because they got to get overtime and, you know, it was this whole thing. But and it was safe. <laughs> and it was safe and nothing happened. But it was just one of these, it was just crazy. And so I, to really answer your question, we just keep pitching these stories and some things make one board. And then after a while, things will migrate from that board until you get to, you know, the one board that has maybe the, the 10 hours laid out. Certain things happen so first. So one board, the first board is just kind of things of interest. Right. Okay. Things of interest. I mean, we had this one story, Nanny Jumper, which, is, which had been up there for like literally from the time I, I started on the show, which was um, Chris Selex. I think the, the, the real story was that her nanny had committed suicide. And we finally ended up in an episode that I wrote this year and it finally getting to use the story. But it could be any random thing that, that happens. And so that eventually will make the board. And then you just kind of keep pitching stuff and you think of themes and you kind of have an idea of where characters are going to go until eventually, you know, the episode like a snowball rolling downhill will begin to get mass. And then you get to that magic moment where, where John actually puts your initials up on the board to actually write the episode. And then you're waiting for that, but then you're afraid because, oh, shit, like this is finally going to be the moment where they find out I can't write. And so... And so you just do it, and you just kind of um, you go through the outline process. And for me, um, even though the outlines, I don't like outlining. It's really now, having been in television for the last three years, I can't not write anything without outlining because you become very dependent on it. And really, the actual scripts are easy because once you get to the outlines, for me, it's just like with the scripts, I just I just let them argue, and then I write down what I, I kind of hear the, the voices. It's really schizophrenic kind of thing, but they begin to have these arguments and they start saying things and I just write down what they say. And so it, by the time you're actually writing, it feels like, it almost feels like you're cheating because it's like, but it, that, that's the thing is you don't lose the time of, of trying to think what happens next. That, that's really the best part of having an outline and really the most important part of it because it allows you to write and at the same time, 
it gives everyone else that's waiting for the script, you know, the various departments and everything else to, you know, an idea of what's going to happen so that nothing stops. And then you just push through it. Outlines are a pain in the ass, so the scripts can be fun. Yeah. That's basically yeah. what they do. Sure, sure. You just get to listen to the voices. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. By the way, I also did, a, yeah, I also did a ride-along. Um, did you? In a golf cart at JPL with a physicist. It was very dangerous. <laughs> did he show you where his extra gun was? Yes. Um, I had a clipboard and everything. Um, it, was, it was pretty intense. Was that for Eureka? Yeah. That's hilarious. <laughs> that is adorable of you guys. <laughs> yeah. Um... I was actually going to ask about research you guys did on that show. Because <laughs> I'm curious, uh, and it's something we've never really talked about. Um, but, you know, it, the question is not really where do the ideas come from. Right. But I guess the question is sort of where do the ideas come from? Because every episode had a very, you know, a very strong jumping off point for the crazy thing that was going to happen. Right. You know, you guys knew your characters so well. That, that seemed like it was sort of the easy part for you. But it was these crazy ideas. Uh, are you all science? Were you all science nerds on that show? Um, we had a really great mix of science fiction nerds and science nerds, which aren't necessarily the same thing in the Venn diagram. There's, there's, there are overlap, like me. Yeah. I'm the overlap, but um, uh, there's so there's a lot of people that had like a strong background in, in, in loving science fiction and you know have like you know can speak authoritatively about, you know, which episode of Star Trek this happened in. Um, and then there's, you know, you know, the rest of us who have, you know, I have a, you know, subscription to New Scientist and Wired and all of these things. And, um, and I think um, we got a lot of ideas from that, like emerging science. We would take emerging science and then we would take it a step forward um, and turn it into to real science. And, um, I mean, we started at a lot of different places. Like, we would start from characters... Um, and say, well, you know, what would be a great thing to, you know, get this relationship a little mixed up? Um, you know, what what would it be a fun thing to do that? And otherwise, other times we would start from a really particular science, um, like you know, bioengineering or something, and 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 say, you know, well, what if there was a character that you know wasn't entirely human, or you know, and um, so I mean, we we actually, yeah, we we we, we came from everywhere, and we had we had a, a physicist that uh, you know that guided us, um, but most of us. When we wrote the scripts, we didn't consult him before we would write the scripts. We would write the scripts and hope for the best. <laughs> and, but, How but, often did that go well? Surprisingly often. Really? Because we, we are That's such amazing. research hounds on our own sure. that we, mm-hmm. wanna, we wanted it to be right the first time. Um, just for a pride thing, you know, like for, for, you know, for nerds. Um, uh, so, yeah, we would, um, you know, a lot of times I would just, like, not even consult him until uh, I would send him the first draft of the script. And he'd say, like, we'll change this word to this word and change that word to this word. And that doesn't make any sense. I'm like, but, yeah, but it's fun. <laughs> and so I would ignore that. And then, uh, but, yeah, it was, uh, it was really interesting. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, and on the specific scripts that you wrote, uh, and maybe, maybe this applies to a person of interest, too. Can you tell us, was there a typical experience uh, you know, for these guys, some of whom have, have been in a room, some of whom have not. Right. Um, well, Eureka was very, very room-based. Um, all of the ideas um, were generated in the room. Um, sometimes we had we had a large staff, so sometimes we would break off into two rooms, and which I prefer because I think I think around five or six people is when you sort of hit the law of diminishing returns, and then it's just a bunch of people talking about ideas mm-hmm. rather than talking about story. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, 
But, you know, on Eureka, like, every single episode was generated from that. Like, someone would bring in the idea, and then we would sort of spitball around it, and, you know, ideas would go up on the board. And, I mean, it was very sort of traditional in that mm-hmm. sense. And, and then were they assigned sort of in the same way as uh, Cheo was talking about on Southland, where it's, you know, you break it in the room, and then they say, okay, this is Amy's story? Oh, although uh, the thing that's different is I think on a lot of shows, like, people are just in the room for hours and hours. The weird, the weird thing about Southland is, like, once the ball really gets rolling, we're only in the room like maybe six hours a week. Oh, really? Um, you know, and the thing is, is like, you know, you meet on Tuesdays and Thursdays from 2.30 to 5.30. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing is, when you're not in the room, you're either working on your own stories or trying to, you know, research or you're talking about things or you're, you know, watching cuts or you're, you know, marking up the scripts of, of people if, so even if you're not writing, you're, you know, all of us are directly involved in all of our storylines. Do you guys note everybody's script on the show? Yes. That's great. Yeah. That's really amazing. It's um, the John Wells model. He does that on every show. Does he? he doesn't, yeah, yeah there's, uh, there's not a lot of room time. And the time that you do spend in the room is just super hyper-efficient, yeah. um, which is so impressive. Yeah. Rarely time in a room is efficient. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, this is, I mean, that's the thing about it. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't think in the three years I've been around John that I've ever seen him leave later than 6.30. And wow. he's and so he's he's running Southland and Shameless simultaneously. Yeah. He's got movies. It's just it's crazy. That's how he can do it. Yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. Well, we, yeah, we had that on uh, Eureka too. Shockingly, um, yeah, yeah, we were always done by six, um, pretty much every day. Um, There's only like one or once or twice where we got bottled up at the end of the season, um, mm-hmm. but um, but even then it was it was fun. We got to spend more time together. It was ridiculously happy staff. I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, yeah, they all loved each other. It's awful. Yeah, it's weird. <laughs> Until it was time to fight over scripts. It's crazy. Uh, well, we didn't fight over scripts. That's the thing. Um, what we did was, which was different than I'd ever done before, was we, we would assign the earliest scripts to the younger, less experienced writers. Mm-hmm. Um, so they would, we would have more time to make those scripts good. Um, and we would allow them to have another, a second pass, which they might not get at the end of the season really when smart. you start getting slammed schedule-wise. So it really allows them to sort of to nurture them and, and to let them, um, you know, like learn the process of rewriting and all that stuff, which, you know, when you get jammed, if you're on, like, you know, episode 18 of a, you know, 22-episode season, like, you know, you're in prep in, like, three days, and, you know, you need to get the script done, and you're not necessarily going to put that in, want to put that in the hands of your, of your staff writer. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, but it was, yeah, it was definitely a way where, where the younger writers can, can, can really sort of step up in the beginning and, and get a second pass, maybe even a third pass before we have to, you know, to see where it goes. Yeah. Uh, Sean, let's talk for a moment about the room you had on The Shield, because you had some heavy hitters in there. I was looking at the list of uh, credited yeah. writers today. Yeah, I mean, they weren't all necessary heavy hitters no, <laughs> when no. we started. Not at the time. I mean, when that, so that show got picked up at the end of August 2001, about two weeks before 9-11. And it, what's interesting is if, it had, if 9-11 had happened earlier, I don't know whether that show would have would gotten picked up, because all of a sudden there was a lot of worry about, you know, hey, we've got to show heroes now. So the idea of, hey, we just picked up a show where our cop is kind of a murderer and <laughs> the country's going through this, but you not know, the best thing. But then about a month later, Training Day opened up and did real well, and I think that made them feel better about things. Um, but, <laughs> but, yeah, so I had missed the staffing season. So essentially when I went to go hire writers in September of 2001 – a lot of the good writers were on shows. 
And so what I found was what I discovered was that I was going to do better discovering new talent mm-hmm. than getting the supervising producer that no other show wanted. Is I guess the best way of putting it. So I had worked for a year with Glenn Mazzara and Nash Bridges and liked them. And uh, I'd been a little bit of a mentor towards them, though I was low on the totem pole. But they sort of assigned me to kind of help him out and be the liaison with him as a freelancer. And then he joined staff. And, you know, I told him that if I got the show going, I'd bring him on staff, which I did. And then I found a guy who had never been on a TV show before, um, Kurt Sutter. Who uh, who had written a West West Wing script, and I remember the West Wing script was really good, but I thought the last two pages I thought were were very saccharine, and I was like, "Wow, a great writer, but you know, can he be tough enough in the writing?" Shut the fuck up! Yeah. <laughs> but then when I brought him into the meeting, you know, he had a very interesting background. He's very open, you know, talking about you know his his issues earlier in life, uh, and I thought that was a very interesting perspective uh, for the show. Um, and then I've got this other guy, Scott Rosenbaum, who, you know, ran V most recently. He's working on Power for FX now, who, um, he'd only been on the UPN sitcom Grown Ups for one year. That was his only staff job, but he had written a soprano script I really liked. And, um, but it's not just the scripts, it's the meetings too. I remember very distinctly, and it's sad, I can't remember the writer's name, but I remember there was a writer who had, written a spec script that I thought was just fantastic. And surprisingly, it was for Law & Order, which you think it was really dry, but he had turned a Law & Order spec script into something pretty great, I thought. And, and, and before the meeting, I was like, well, I'm, just, I'm hiring this guy almost no matter what. And then it wasn't like the meeting was really bad, but, but I just got a feeling that he wasn't right for this show in the meeting. Um, and so I did not hire him despite the script. So it's not always just about the best mm-hmm. script. It's about... You know your connection with this particular show. Mm-hmm. Um, what you know? How will you be a part of the group in the room? Because my shows tend to be very room intensive, a lot of time. And so, yeah, we hired him. Um, so those three guys. Uh, there were a couple other people that sort of shook out. You know, after a year or two, uh, but those three guys stayed through the first five seasons. After that, I was able to add uh, like Liz Craft and Sarah Fain. Mm-hmm. Um, Am Fierro and Chick Egley came season three. And so around season four, season five, we had a bit of a dream team, I thought, on the writing staff who completely knew the show. Um, and, then, and then they all got you know, too successful. I mean, people wanted them, and, and we could afford to keep them all. And you know, we lost Glenn to an overall deal. We lost Skeeter, which is what we call Scott. We, you know, we lost Skeeter along the way um and and so kurt was the only one that that sort of lasted season one through season seven um but yeah i you know and the show would not have been nearly as good without those writers and i you know i say all the time because <clears throat> when people talk about showing there's so many decisions to make mm-hmm. but if you make the right decisions on the first five questions there's a lot fewer decisions you have to make later on and and the fact was whether whether through some kind of innate skill I didn't know I had or through sheer luck, I really hired the right people at the beginning of the shield. Scott Brazil is our director producer um, these guys as writers Clark Johnson to direct the pilot uh, you know the people that we end up casting in the show when there were some other ideas that looking back in retrospect would not have been great um, and and so yeah we we 
you know, but we all taught each other, I would say. You know, Kurt Sutter then was not the Kurt Sutter he is now. And, and Scott and Glenn, you know, Glenn who's running Walking Dead now, you know, we all kind of, uh, we all, we all kind of acknowledged, okay, we kind of half know what we're doing here, you know, so catch me if I fall, mm-hmm. you know, if I make a mistake, you know, so we would all catch each other, you know, it, the idea was, I want to hear risky ideas. I want to hear crazy ideas. I'm not going to make fun of someone for an idea that's way out there. You know, don't get mad if I pull you back from it or if I say no to it. But let's, you know, but let's, what's the story we can tell that no other show on TV is going to tell? This is something I actually wanted to ask. Was it a conversation in the room about how far was too far or what can we get away with or what can Vic get away with for that matter? Yeah, I, uh, you know, I, I definitely was very protective of Vic as a character because literally every episode pitched on that show by staff writers, Vic killed somebody. <laughs> <laughs> and at a certain point, I just had to say, Vic is not a serial killer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's a killer, mm-hmm. you know, and he will do some bad things along the way. But if he's going to actually kill somebody we've got to earn that we've got to make a big moment of it you know and i don't want to hear every single episode mm-hmm. that you know vic killed somebody um but you know but i want but if they had a pitch involved i want to hear it you know but don't be shocked when i say it. so so you know the bar was higher for a vic kills somebody pitch <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> than than other things uh but you know what was great was you know, I just took the attitude, learned it from Carlton Cuse on, on Nash, and this might seem a strange show because the show was never highly regarded. But if you, you know, but I thought, you know, the problem with Nash wasn't in Los Angeles where we wrote the scripts, I don't think. I think the problem was up in San Francisco where the episodes were filmed uh, for a variety of reasons because I saw some really good scripts that I had nothing to do with get shipped up to San Francisco, and I mm-hmm. saw some weird execution shipped back. Um, but but Carlton always talked about the idea that uh, that no one episode is greater than the series. That 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 you know, who do I say? None of you is gonna you know get famous or rich off of one Nash Bridges script that you write. But we can all sort of be better perceived in this town if the show does well. And and the show never got perceived the way we would have liked to. In part because we we're always we we're in the same time slot as Homicide Life on the Street, which was a show I adored. And every TV critic in the world wanted to keep it alive, and they decided the way to do that was to smash Nash Bridges. <laughs> so, I mean, we never got any good reviews. But, but it was a great lesson. And so when I went to The Shield, I was like, you know, on a Saturday night when you've worked all week, and you're invited to some party, you go to the party, and a person asks what you do, and you say you're a writer, and they say, what do you write for? Um, I want you to say, you know, I, when you say The Shield, I want people to say, oh, say, oh. Do you know what I mean? But we got to write the episodes to earn that. Yeah. And we got to make the episodes to earn that. And I want that to be and, – and, and, and so, you know, there was such effort by the entire team, you know, and, and, and there was an attitude, which I hope that I led by example, but, but definitely everyone filled in, which was we're not going to go home until it's great. And I'm not saying that it was great every time that, you know, we may have failed along the way, but, but it was re- we never settled mm-hmm. for anything less than the best we could do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, the same question, I'm curious, Jay, on, on Southland, you know, it, it revels in these sort of small moments. An act can be made up of the two guys pulling someone over, right. and then someone else arrives at a crime scene, and then uh-huh. some other small thing happens. Do you guys ever wonder, is it a conversation in the room about how far can we go, how far is too far? Well, I mean, that's the thing. It's like, um, 
the moment I'm thinking of was in episode eight of season three when um, it was the, the, the episode that I co-wrote with Will Rokos um, where Sammy finally confronts, I mean, hopefully I'm not ruining this for, for people, that, again, spoiler alert, um, Sammy's partner Nate in season, in season three gets killed. Um, and in episode four and then episode eight, Sammy finally takes the guy that did it or who he thinks did it out to the desert and is going to kill him. Um, and I fought long and hard and lost the argument that Sammy should have killed him. Um, but the one thing, and you know, the one thing that both um, John Wells and um, Chris Chulak said um, was that we couldn't do it because it's not the shield. And, and, they, didn't, and they didn't mean that to, to denigrate the show. It's just that, you know, that. You know, the shield, the wire, you know, they each do things differently than Southland. And the only way I think they think that Southland could, dif- could differentiate itself is to do it differently. So if, you, if, so if we're going to do corruption, um, we have to do it. Or we have, like, so if you see what happened with, with Ben McKenzie's character th- this season, um, we, the thing is, the, the shield's so damn good, it kind of spoiled it for everybody. Where it's just, it's just like you, you, you really have to, if, if you want to, you know, blazer trail, you have to come, you have to see, okay. And this is, I mean, I ultimately learned what they meant, because I, I still think that Sammy should have killed him. But the thing was, was that what they were saying, and, and it really worked out well for this year, is that if Sammy gets to the edge and then doesn't cross the edge, when one of our characters does do it, we will have understand as an audience what that means. And so it'll have, in a way, a deeper impact. Um, and so even though I lost that battle, I think ultimately as a show, and, and also I think one of the things we learned as staff is that it really had, had a much deeper impact. I mean, no matter what you think about what happened this season with Ben, um, to a certain extent, you kind of understand um, what that means. And so that if we are going to you know, explore that further... Then it'll be in its own way. I mean, I think the thing that Southland does is that um, some. I mean, and this happens with our advisors. I mean, like you know, some of our advisors are very much spit and polish, LAPD, you know, blue, blue all the way through. You know, other of our advisors are definitely dedicated, hard charging cops, but are more than willing to to give us stories where police don't look all that good, and we just try to you know find the most human moments that we can find. And portray that, and it seems that even though on Facebook we, we do get sometimes get attacked by some cops, the the grand majority seem seem to to like what we come up with, you know. Um, I, I don't really know if if I mean, that's the thing. It's, it's just like I don't really know if you, there is really an edge or something that you can't cross. I mean, because even if you look at the Shield, what was great, what I loved about the show is that no matter what Vic Mackey did. I always, even when he was at his most corrupt, he was, he was still a cop to me. There was still, he still had his own code. Now, his code and the way that he did things might not have aligned with what the rest of society, you know, said. But at the same time, he went about things in a way and loved him or hate him. He was, he, he was a, I, I think he's a good cop. But even though he, he took some crazy ways to get around <laughs> to the ways that, that he got. It was so, always a justified action to him. You know, and so that, that's what I think made that show, just as a viewer, just so enjoyable. And with us, it's like, at least on Southland, you know, um, we do adhere more to procedure, but we still try to find those moments of humanity and where our guys can do wrong. So. Well, it's working. Uh, if you guys aren't watching Southland, please yeah, go, for God's sake. Um, <laughs> 
Uh, I actually, I have the same question for you, Amy, in regard to Eureka. Sure. Uh, did you ever worry about it becoming too, well, for lack of a better word, because you did some animation, too cartoony? Oh, that was always a concern. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, because you never know with that show what was too broad. You just sort of had yeah. to feel it out, you know, like it was sort of an instinct thing. Um, and we always had problems with stakes on that show because, like, you know, since it is sort of like a, a sci-fi dramedy, um, and, you know, the lead guy is a sheriff, you want there to be sort of a law enforcement stakes angle to it, which is a word you hear a lot. Um, but how can you do that? Because if he kills anybody or people die, it doesn't really feel like the show. There was, there was a, there was a, a, a huge, um, it was a, it was a, a concern and something that we thought about for every single episode of the mm-hmm. show. Like, what is too far in the comedic direction and what is too far in the stakes direction to sure. where... Neither actually feels like the show. Yeah. Um, which is. Do, do you ever feel like you tipped one way or the other in in specific instances? I think the show tipped. Um, I I only started on the show season four, right. and season four became a very different show. Um, it was a great season. So. Yeah. Um, it became a, it became a much more sort of like character based. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a little more um, weighty. Um, than it had previously been. So well, it there took was, the characters a little more seriously, for I sure. think. For sure, yeah, yeah. And we took the relationships a lot mm-hmm. more seriously. And, I mean, because there was, there was episodes early on in the show where, like, you know, there was, I think there was one where the, the house um, kidnapped everyone. The, the house is, like, automated and, like, has a mind of its own. And it, like, it, like, forced everybody to stay in the house. And then all of a sudden, Ed's laughing. He's one of the writers over there. <laughs> he knows what I'm going to say. Um, and then, like, you know, the house decided that it didn't want anybody to leave because um, it was sad. And like a you know pizza delivery boy came to the front door and the freaking house zapped him and he died and it was so weird. I remember watching the show and I'm like I'm like oh, I didn't think that's what the show was, but I guess it is because there are cops. I don't. But so like I mean I felt like it was a little um, disjointed um, earlier on. But then what we realized I think in the later seasons is that um, if we had some sort of arc if we had something that we were building towards if we had something where every episode can hang on um, whether it's something that you just talk about in one conversation during the course of the episode um, like in, in season one it was you know or season four um, it was the time travel your aspect. season one yeah my season one on the show um, it was it was time travel and everything all the stories that were generated could somehow be sort of tangentially um, you know fed back into into that storyline and then Season um, season four point five, which is yeah whatever, um, was a different, completely different season. But they named it the same, so they didn't have to pay us. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, that was that was all build up to a, a large mission. So there was like you know there was training. There was like there's a lot of things where each each episode delved somewhat into this this larger mission, um, and it really held the show together. Um, and it really made sort of like the character relationships pop a little more because they were all working towards something that was bigger. Um, and it really, I mean, I, I think it, it really kind of saved the show in, in sort of the change of direction as far as um, just making sure, yeah, yeah, and making sure like everything sort of paid off too, like where it didn't feel like it was just every episode was just something crazy happens, and the next episode something crazy happens. It feels like every episode was building to something else. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really, I think, gave way to the show. And this is, I mean, I, we've talked about this before on the panel, but this seems to be the way 
television is going. I mean, we're looking at serialized stories these days, and even something like Southland, which, you know, you can watch an episode having not seen any of the others, but there is an arc to the characters over well, the season. I mean, I think the, the key is it's um, cases closed, but the characters stay open. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's kind of a way of, of like, you want to have a certain resolution to most of the cases, so it kind of, you, you're almost fooling the network in, 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 you know, into giving them the closed episodes that they want, mm-hmm. but you're still building enough of character where if you are a long-time viewer of the show, then it, you, you're rewarded um, by episode 10 with stuff that was sprinkled in episodes 1, 2, and 3, and, and so on. Gotcha. So. Uh, and, Sean, I was curious about this with the Chicago Code. Because uh, this was, you know, a move to network or back to network for you, uh, but it was your show. Um, and coming off the shield, which was highly serialized, especially in those later seasons, uh, was it an adjustment? Was there, you know, a pressure from the network to make it a little more episodic? No, they they really liked. I mean, that was as similar to what you're saying about Southland. There were cases that would open and close within that episode, but then there was an ongoing storyline with Delray Lindo and, and would he be brought to justice and, and, and ongoing personal elements too, and they, they liked that. Okay. Um, and that's why I pitched them. And, and so as a writer, you just have to, you know, you have to realize The Shield was, you know, when I wrote The Shield pilot script, it was in reaction to three years of being on Nash Bridges where there were a lot of rules about what Nash could and couldn't do and always had to be a hero. Mm -hmm. And the only time he could ever make a mistake was when he couldn't quite make it work out with whatever 26-year-old beautiful woman was interested (laughs) in that week. And, and And so I wrote the S.H.I.E.L.D. script like, okay, let me just get that out of my system. And then the problem is they made it. And the problem, <laughs> problem was they picked it up, and then all of a sudden it became a seven-year defining thing for me. Except except to me, if there's a range that you consider yourself as a writer, the shield was way over on one side of it. And and I'm, you know, obviously incredibly proud of the series and 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 that and that is part of who I am as a writer. And yet there were these, over that period of time, there were these unexplored sections. And, and to me, the Chicago Code fit that. Okay, let me, you know, let me do something for a wider audience where the guys are a little bit more heroic. They're still going to have flaws and drink too much. And, you know, a guy who can't decide between, you know, his new young fiance and his, his, his older ex-wife. And, and, and let's do that. And, you know, but I, it was interesting. There was about a three-year period when the Shield and the unit were running at the same time. And I would have to go from office to office. And wow. you'd almost click a switch. Like, okay, I'm in FX land right now where you stick people's faces on burning stoves. <laughs> and then, okay, now I'm over at CBS where, you know, we're not going to do, do that. <laughs> and yet we still have to make the episode... You know, you know, in some ways that can be a crutch, and and it was always something I was fighting at FX that, you know, that don't just write the word bullshit because you can, right. you know, does it mean something? Don't just do something shocking because FX will let us. Mm-hmm. You know, what what is the dramatic impetus for doing it, and what's the payoff there? And so all of a sudden, it was interesting where like the creator of the Shield and David Mamet go to CBS. <laughs> And I think we only got one or two, you know, S&P notes yeah. you know, our entire first year because that wow. we weren't trying to do those sort of things. And so everybody was like, oh, my God, you and Mammoth must have just gone at it with S&P. And, well, no, we weren't writing motherfucker in our CBS script. <laughs> you know, we knew the rules. We went in. We wanted to do this. 
And so that's what we did. I have a whole slew of questions about the unit, but we'll get to it another time. Um, Very quickly, before we turn over to questions, we have time for a couple from you guys. Um, uh, You said, Sean, you started out, you know, writing comedy, writing drama. What what is your background as a writer? What was the stuff that you used to watch on television or that you would read? What inspired you as a kid? Well, I'm, I'm 45 years old, so born in 66, came of age in the 70s with television, and that was the golden age of comedy. So from a very early age, it was all in the family, the Mary mm-hmm. Tyler Moore show, and then Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, um, Taxi. The big show for me was Cheers. When that premiered when I was in high school, that like changed things for me and made me view TV differently and made me aware that people wrote this stuff and that better writers made better TV. Um I was I was much more of a jock than anything else in high school, but I had the advantage of going to a very tiny, tiny school where you did everything. And so I would play on the basketball team, yet I would also be in the school play. And so you'd be in basketball practice, and somebody would open the door to the gym and say, Sean, they're about to rehearse your scene. And you'd, <laughs> you'd run from basketball practice to the commons, and you'd rehearse your scene, and then you'd go back to basketball practice. Wow. And so I was really exposed to theater, was, you know, was in a Tom Stoppard play in high school, and got very interested in Tom Stoppard and and did that kind of stuff. And so when I arrived at college, um, I started taking a couple theater classes, which led to writing some scenes, which led to writing some plays in college and ended up winning an award through the American College Theater Festival that brought me out to Los Angeles. And what was the first thing you got paid for out here? That award that I won through American College Theater Festival, the award was... um, Spend two weeks in the writer's room of a sitcom. It was for best comedy play in the country for the you know for the collegiate ranks, and um, and then you'll 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 write a script whether we use it or not we don't know but we'll pay you for writing a script which back then was like you know fourteen grand it was an unbelievably ungodly <laughs> amount of money at age twenty three yeah. when it happened and so and so I I did that they had to pay me they didn't use it. <laughs> um, and then, I, and then it was over. But I asked the guy who ran the show, Bob Meyer. I said, "What show was it?" It was my two dads. Okay. <laughs> That's what it was called. Paul Rise and Greg. And I will give myself a little credit because there was this one actor who was like seventh on, you know, number seven on the call sheet. Who was like, "This guy's really good." And you guys, how do you ever write anything for him? And it was. Um, Giovanni Ribisi. Yeah. Uh, and so the script I wrote was very heavy on Giovanni Ribisi because <laughs> I, I really thought he was great. And, uh, and I wrote this thing, and the thing they looked at was like, well, this is not Giovanni Ribisi's show. <laughs> and now we all know it should have been. <laughs> but anyway, so, uh, so I, I, I wrote the script. Uh, they didn't use it, but I got paid. But then I, I knew they were short a couple of stories. I said, can I come back and pitch you something in a couple of weeks? It was, I can't believe I even asked. And I can't believe he said yes. And I went back and I had fully fleshed out these three pitches, you know, which he very quickly shot down. No, we can't do this because of this, 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 anything else. And there was this one spark of an idea I'd had in the shower that morning that I hadn't worked on at all. And, and I just gave like the one line pitch. And he was like, it was kind of generic. You know, it, was, it wasn't like the most amazing one I pitched. But and he was like, well, that's sort of interesting. You could do this, you could do that. In about 10 minutes, he had broken it. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to do that. 
And so my very first credit that I putting the award aside, I sold a story to my two dads that they literally nine days after I pitched it, they were filming it wow. because they were having casting issues with other scripts that they had in place. They were trying to cast the girlfriends of the two guys and they couldn't do it. And, and all of a sudden I found myself back there. They were like, we're going to do this. We're going to do it next week. Come back in, help us out. And so, so it was a very whirlwind thing where it came very easy, very early for me. And then it took five years after that to get another paying gig. <laughs> so, so I really feel like I did, you know, earn my stripes. And I ended up writing like 16 spec scripts during that time, wow. um, both comedy and drama. And for existing shows or original stuff? Yeah. I, I, you know, if anyone's interested, it ages me, but I, I anticipated this coming up and I, I wrote them all down. <laughs> Uh, Cheers, Coach, News Radio, Friends, two different spec comedy pilots, Roseanne, Larry Sanders, Seinfeld, those were the comedies I wrote, L.A. Law, Northern Exposure, NYPD Blues, Sopranos, My Two Dads, and then I had written half of an X-Files when I got my uh, paying job, so I stopped. (laughs) But but it really really takes, you know, a lot of... And that's a great training to just throw yourself into all those specs. Yes, but now they need to be good. You'd rather write one great one than yeah. ten mediocre ones, yeah. you know. So, and that was the lesson I learned was that the scripts I was writing were kind of like on a seven or eight. I thought they were good, but just a quick story that people seem to like is that I was frustrated because now I've been a few years, I hadn't gotten a job, I was getting enough feedback that oh, your writing's good, but but not enough good feedback to actually get a job. And so I went to my manager and I said, I don't understand because I feel like these scripts I'm writing are really good and. And will you show me a spec script uh, from from a writer that you represent that's getting that writer work? Because I want to understand what that writer's doing that I'm not doing. And he gave me Tim Minear's X-Files uh, spec wow. script that got him a job on X-Files. And I read it, and I was like, okay, now I see. I didn't feel like his high spots in that script were better than my high spots. But page one through page 55 or whatever mm-hmm. was just consistently great. And I realized that I'd been too easy on myself and too self-satisfied with the scripts. And so I said, I'm going to write the next spec I'm going to write. I'm going to hold myself to this standard of, the, of Tim's script. Mm-hmm. And I wrote a Larry Sanders script, an NYPD Blue script, that I held myself to that standard. I just went back and I perfected, perfected, perfected. And those were the two scripts that got me a bunch of jobs okay. after that. Do you remember how long it took to write those two scripts? Listen, I write very, very fast once I know what I'm writing. Um, so it took me a few weeks to think about what the Larry Sanders would be, and then I literally wrote it in two nights. Um, I mean, it's only a 30-page script, and you can crank out 15 pages yeah, a day double-spaced if you know yeah, what you're writing. Absolutely. So the NYPD Blue was probably a week. That's great, though. I mean, it's, it's good training, too. But, but it takes much longer to figure out the story, and, and I tend not to, I don't try to discover things on the page. I want to... You know, I want to write down in bullet point you know, what the scene. I need to understand the scene before I go off and write. So, mm-hmm. so it frustrates people when they hear, "Oh, you wrote really quick." Well, no. I mean, the Chicago Code Pilot I wrote in like three nights, but it took me three months to figure out what to write. Right. Absolutely. Uh, Chael, same question. What is your background as a writer and as a consumer of entertainment and things? Well, it's just it's funny, just like trying to think of what to say. It's like I'm 39, so like I remember shows like. Um, I can tell you that Dukes of Hazard came on at eight o'clock on Fridays. <laughs> like, um, I mean, cause, you know, I was of that generation where before they did studies, and my, my my wife's a pediatrician, where she's like, she always wants to limit the amount of time of television that our kids watch. But um, I grew up in front of the television. I mean, 
I learned how to tell time because of television. Yep. I mean, you know, like 12.30 was Ryan's Hope, which meant that 1 o'clock was All My Children, which meant that 2 o'clock was One Life to Live, which meant that 3 was General Hospital. And then, you know, because this was with my father's mother, because um, my, 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 both my grandmothers were so different. Um, and so my, my grandmother, my father's mother, grew up in Georgia. Like, her whole window to the world was her television set. So, for example, she was the kind of person that, um, because I think the, the guy that plays Gordon on Sesame Street once was a pimp in Willie Dynamite. <laughs> she 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 got she wouldn't let me watch. She got mad when I watched Sesame Street. I, I can't believe they they, they, they um, let that pimp, you know, <laughs> talking to, to the little children, you know. So so it was it was you know, but because that was the thing, she couldn't separate. I learned very important lessons about characters. She couldn't really separate characters, but all she watched were procedurals. So like you know, I I watched T.J. Hooker, Kojak, Matt Houston. Um, I. I I used, to, I used to love, um, like, I, I know, like, all these different theme songs to shows, because back in the day, they used to always have, like, Mike Post used to, used to do, like, write these yep. great themes. <laughs> Richest man in Hollywood, I'm told, Mike yeah. Post. But, it, I mean, because they, they used to have, like, these, all these whole sequences. Like, I think my favorite ever is, is Hunter. Hunter, for sure. Because, because you know, he, all this crazy shit, things blowing up, and at the end, works for me. You know, like, you know, it was just, like, it was, it was just really kind of, like, cool. Like, all these, I, like, I always have credit sequences in my head, cause, because of growing up with that stuff. Um, I was born in New Haven, grew up in Storrs, Connecticut. Storrs is, you know, when I was growing up, UConn was the doormat of the Big East. So, I mean, anytime that Syracuse, St. John's, or Georgetown, or anybody wanted an easy win, they'd come to UConn. <laughs> and um, it's where cow tipping was invented. It's about as far away from hip-hop as you can imagine. Um, I was always the only African-American male in class. I, most, most, of my, most of my early years there. And so it was funny because in order to be cool with the fat brats I was hanging out with, like, they were, they were almost directly responsible for everything that happened to me becoming a writer and my love of reading. Because in order to be cool, you had to read not just all, you know, the entire Lord of the Rings. You, had to read the, you also had to read the, the, the Cimmerillion. Like, like, you know, you, you, you were like, you know, you, you were like, play, you know, playing... Um, not only Dungeons and Dragons, but top secret Marvel superheroes. Wow. At like, you know, it's funny. It's just That's stressful. Well, I mean, well, it's, it's just funny because it's like years later. It's like I'm, I'm like hanging out with Biggie or somebody else, and they're, and they're shooting dice, shooting Celo, and I'm thinking, okay, the only dice I shot had had, had nine and twelve sides on. <laughs> you, you, you know what I'm saying? And so it's just like, <laughs> so you have that, and then um, you know, well, twenty Biggie. <laughs> but, it, but it was one of these things. I mean, but, but the, the other important lesson I learned, you know, the reason I even started writing my hip hop was my cousins would come to visit, um, you know, myself, my grandfather, my grandmother in, in stores. And they would come back with like my cousin, Timby, who actually I'm going to have dinner with later on tonight. She would always record um, Red Alert or all these different, um, you know, because they had Red Alert, Mr. Magic in New York. And they would have these hip hop mix shows. And so she would tape these shows. And so. You know, this is back in the day. That's why I'm dating myself. But, but literally, there was no iTunes. There was no podcast. You literally had to wait in front of the radio for the show to happen. You'd sit there with your with your box, and you would just press record, and you would record the songs. And so, like, she, every Friday, Red Alert would have a show. So we'd record a show and then come to Connecticut. And, oh, I'm not listening to this anymore. This is played out. You can have this. Oh, my God. Thank you. <laughs> and so I was listening to these tapes until they popped. It was the only connection I had to young African-Americans my age, you know, being isolated. And so I just became so obsessed with these with these tapes and just with hip-hop that 
I just kind of took a nerd's approach to hip hop, where not only was I listening to, to records, but I'm also like remembering the liner notes. I'm like looking at the back of Public Enemy records and 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 like remembering all the groups they would talk about, so that when they came out, like a tri- like a Tribe Called Quest or Leaders of the New School, I would go research the you know and and just eat it all up. So that led to me becoming a journalist, and then being a journalist is where it led to everything else. Um, the most important thing I learned being a journalist is like, you know, if you're hanging out. And you're in the middle of, and you just, you know, you, like even being around the game in Compton, it's like, don't hide who you are. Like, I'm not going to sit here and smoke weed and act like I'm somebody I'm not. Because then when the gunfire goes off, which it did that night, I don't want anybody looking at me like I'm really going to sit around and, 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 and wait around. Like, I'm like, I'm down for this. You know what I'm saying? It's really more from just be yourself. And, th- and th- that's what they respect is the realness. I mean, I'm like, look, I'm not going to, I'm. Hotchkiss and Stanford, you know, so like I'm not going to hide that. And it, what's weird is that they actually accept you better because of, oh, yo, he's real. So then, yo, uh, a couple of years ago, this is crazy shit. That, and then all of a sudden you're telling you the story, the end of which you really don't want to know because you don't want to ever be in front of the cops. And they have to say, look, this is what really happened. Yeah. But yeah. I, but I always take that in, into whatever I, I write is just like when you're researching or even when you're writing something, just try to be true to what it is. Be true to yourself, but at the same time, be true to your characters. And I think that's really the most important thing. And even when you're researching things, I mean, people can always sniff out who's fake and who really wants to know something. And so when you're going out researching different worlds for pilots and thinking about things, be respectful of people. Be respectful of their time. Be respectful of their experiences and, you know, just listen and open your ears. And, that, and then I think that leads really in all these really great directions once people really understand that you're serious about understanding who they are. And then that also translates directly into whatever you write. Absolutely. You can tell in the script. You can tell on the screen. Uh, Amy, I think we talked about... Listen to Amy Berg's breaking in story from the last time she was here. <laughs> I'm not going to go into it. No, again, we, we don't have to go into it. Podcast already um, in detail. But it's like in the first ten episodes, I think. Uh, go listen to it. It is horrible. It is the way not to break in, but it Horribly worked for her. Awesome. Uh, it is a great story. Um, but what we didn't talk about was uh, when did you become aware that television is a thing that is written? You know, do you remember what were you watching at the time? Uh, you know, when you were younger and. and Realizing this is a thing not only that's written, but it's something you could do. Um, I, th- I think it actually stems back to my grandmother, oddly, because <laughs> she, you know, she had her ABC soap operas and she had to watch them, but she didn't call them soap. She called them stories. Yeah, I remember that. I have to, I have to watch my stories. And I was like, stories, like, they're not, like, you know, they're what? not, like, telling you, like, you think it's somebody sitting down at, yeah. like, a fireplace and, like, telling you a story. But, but they all change. I mean, because I, I remember, you know, the whole thing in the 80s was Luke and Laura. I remember when Luke raped Laura. <laughs> I mean, I, like all the way back to that. You got the you got the real story and, later, and, and, right? And then, and then all of a sudden, it's like you know, years later, you're like, wait, like this is happening. And then they they had this whole espionage thing with with um, I can't remember Robert Scorpio. It was like, all these crazy, ad- but like people wow. watching them, it was real. I mean, that, that's what they would do. They just get into it. No, but she would she would talk about her stories, and it was like a big deal to her. And these were real people, and it was mm-hmm. like. Um, and I think that got me thinking about, like, well, who's telling these stories? Because, you know, I'm in my head, like, uh, stories were always verbal. Because um, right. I grew up a very sort of, like, visual audi- um, auditory person. And, and so for me, like, um, you know, I, was, I, was, I would just think about, well, who, somebody's got to be, you know, telling those guys what to say. So who are those people? Um, and then, you know, I would, 
I, I grew up on, on Hunter and, and A-Team and yeah. MacGyver. Um, and, and there were... You could tell when the episodes were good and yeah. when they weren't good. And you could tell that when you were 10. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, there was a way where you well, could figure that well, it's, out. It's, uh, I, I stopped watching The Greatest American Hero where there was an episode where he actually, you know, the whole thing is, you know, this guy's kind of kind of a fuck up and then he gets this suit and he, he gets to be a superhero, but he lost the instruction booklet, which is why he, like, flies sideways. And there was one episode <laughs> where he actually got the instruction booklet and you could, and then you really could see what the suit could do, and it was just like all this amazing stuff. But that wasn't and, what the show was. And then at the very end of the episode, he loses the instruction booklet, um, and I was just so mad at him. I, I just, I, I couldn't watch the show again. <laughs> but, but it's just, you, but you're right. How? Do you how, remember the one with the haunted house? Okay. No one remembers. We have time for like, and <laughs> we're we're gonna run over. I'm sorry. Too right. bad. These guys are too good. Um, we have time for like two questions. If you ask them very succinctly. What I've never heard is you guys talk about how thoughtful you are about reestablishing the narrative when you come back from commercial breaks. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious. Good question. Yeah, I mean, this is something that I know is often dictated also uh, by <laughs> networks, but... I never worried about it. Um, maybe to my detriment on the shows, because they will tell you and they'll show you this research and people coming in and, and the, you know, The Shield was never a show that... You know, I think the research that The Shield was... Had, was one of the shows that had the highest retention rates of those people who started the episode would then go all the way through and finish the episode. And so I didn't worry about people coming in half an hour into it. And, and pretty soon I discovered that people were catching on reruns on FX or, or would get the DVDs, you know. And so I just assumed that was a show that would, you know, would do it. Um, but there's something to it. Obviously, these networks have done a lot of research into why people watch the shows, how they watch the shows. And there's something there, you know, you just, if you do it, you need to do it in a way that, you know, hides the expositional nature of it, I think. Like, I always kind of come up with, with like, if you're doing five-act structure, I kind of think of pet names for each act. Like, act one is what's new in the zoo. (laughs) Act two is, you know, rising action. Well, wow, that's interesting. Act three is, oh, shit, I better come back. Act four is, we got that motherfucker. And 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 then act five is, it's Miller time. <laughs> and, 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 and usually, and usually, what happens is, is like you notice on Southland, like I, the reason I call that Act Miller time is like, you know, sometimes the, it literally the, is. That, that, yeah. Yes, that's usually like they're they're taking their clothes off and getting ready to to go get yeah. a drink or or, or or do something else, and so um, it just kind of in your in your mind you always have okay certain things need to happen that lead to these things, but you always know that the end of Act 3 has to be enough of a cliffhanger, and then you're going to resolve that cliffhanger, at least on our show, in Act 4. Then Act 5 is just going to be about, like, everyone, you know, saying, oh, you know, gee, like, I wish I knew you, you know, whatever it is they're going to talk about, you know. Uh, let me, and let me broaden that a little bit, and anybody who wants to tackle it. Uh, talk to us about writing exposition. It can be tricky. <laughs> you how do you guys go about it? Or I, how do you make it easy? Well, you make it fun. I mean, like, I mean, we had the benefit on Eureka to where, I mean, we could use humor to explain it away. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, and, and Sheriff Carter um, had a lot of instances where, you know, we had to do this sort of like, what's the baseball metaphor? So the dumb guy could figure it out, you know, right. like, and, and for some reason, metaphors always work. Mm-hmm. They always work. I mean, because you can, like, for five minutes, you can talk about, you know, like some, you know, I don't know. Like there's some explosion in the in the reactor, and blah, 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 blah. but um, but then you've, you you know you just explained away. Well, well, you know it's like you know if the guy hit a pop fly and, and you know like 
for some reason, they always work. And, they, well, and you they get allow jokes you, out of it. And well, yeah, you get a joke out of it, and then that relieves um, the, you know, the stink, essentially, mm-hmm. on, on the exposition itself. Um, right. You don't have the luxury of doing that on a show like The Shield, I would think. Um, <laughs> but... Um, I mean, on on, on on person of interest. I mean, it, it was it was the same way. I mean, we, um, you know, there's a lot of. We also had Michael Emerson delivering it all, so that made everything a lot easier because um, you wanted just to watch him talk. And mm-hmm. and I think this is something that when I was on at Leverage that we that we actually figured out fairly early, and I think it was to the benefit of the show, and that was the audience loves to see the group together talking about stuff. <laughs> Like, their favorite scenes were always when all five of them on Leverage were, like, in the same room talking about, like, what we're going to do this episode and giving them each other shit and all that <laughs> stuff. Like, they just, they love that stuff. And it, it's sort of like, it reminds you of sort of a familial unit. And when you, mm-hmm. like, have these, these dialogues and it seems like a lot of it's ridiculous, people actually like that stuff. I like that stuff. I mean, the stuff that Finch says on Person of Interest, I find fascinating. Because this is all stuff about, you know, like, you know, our, our privacy being, you know, taken over by computers, essentially. Um, and I, you know, I personally, it freaks me out. And, um, and I think it freaks a lot of people out. And I think people like to hear, like, holy shit, is that really going on? Like, they, mm-hmm. And we use that on Person of Interest, I think, to inspire research. Like, to inspire people to go out and, and read articles and, um, you know... Ch- you know, grab the latest Wired and, and, and read all about the thing in Utah that's happening right now, which is essentially the machine for person of interest. <laughs> Scary shit. I, I, I would just add that uh, it's always easier to rewrite exposition than to write it. Oh, for yeah. sure. So write it bad the first time and just know you're going to come back and change it. And then a little trick we always have the shield was I think exposition is always easier to go down when someone's angry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so, so for Vic to go, you know, you know, we didn't risk our lives to steal 2.5 million from the Armenian mob just for this team to fall apart. <laughs> well, that's sort of interesting to watch, and you don't realize, oh, you've just been fed some information there. Yeah, that's cool. So, uh, that See, is tricks. That's, that's all mean, the time the we have for tricks. questions. Yeah. Uh, but very briefly, uh, let's go down the line, starting with Amy. What are you watching on television? What is or was your room talking about? Uh, what's inspiring you? What do you love? What can't you miss? Good God! Um, what well, I've been I've been spending a lot of the last week reading pilots, and I'm actually yeah. like really excited to see some of these things. Like, a lot of good ones this year. The Last Resort, which is Sean's great, new one, is, great pilot. is so absurdly good. It's ridiculous. Um, but uh, like the shows, I can't miss. Miss or you know, it's essentially you know if it has zombies, I'm watching it. That's pretty. <laughs> it's my baseline. I can only think of one. Yeah. <laughs> so that I'm up on. Uh, you know, obviously, person of interest. But the problem is, when you're making TV, you have less time to watch TV. So you really only yeah. can pick like two or three series that you can like. Okay, I'm going to watch the season of that show, mm-hmm. and everything else is just playing catch up <laughs> on DVD or TiVo. Like whenever you get a yeah, break, yeah. but I, it's I've, so hard. I, I, I really sympathize. I've got a, a stack of all these Blu-rays that yeah. like a, <laughs> of seasons that I want to get to of Breaking Bad and other things, but. You know, I just because you, when you're on the show, you're so obsessed with the show, and just thinking about the show at every waking moment, it's kind of hard to watch stuff. But I think for me, the show that I'm just obsessed with and I just can't get enough of right now is Game of Thrones. Oh yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I, 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 I think. I mean, for me, like Game of Game of Thrones is is I'm probably. I haven't really been as obsessed with an HBO show since The Wire, and it's really, it's just so intricate, and, just, and it was one of those things I, I went into kicking and screaming, because it's like, you know, I, I, I think I... Me too. 
like I had about maybe four. He's still kicking and I had, I had four or five of them stacked up, and it was just like, okay, here we go. First 15, 20 minutes. I've seen this is this is every every Lord of the Rings done, and then okay, well, it's getting a little better, and then the final thing where where Cersei and, and them are getting it on, and the kid comes in and they push the kid, and he says, oh, the things you do for love. I'm like, oh shit, I gotta watch the next one. <laughs> and then I stayed up all night, and like, but luckily because I let him stack, I just sat and just watched him. And I'm like, then you just sitting there like like the monkey just being like, come on, like, where, like where's the next one? Where's the next one? You know, so it's it's a it's a fun show. We have did, to get you home with, tonight, then. Yeah. Yeah. I did that with Homeland actually. I let them stack up on my TiVo yeah. on purpose so I can watch them all in a row because I watched one and I was like. I can't fucking wait a week to watch the next one. What the hell? That seems to yeah. be the so way I, like, with a I lot of these. So I just let them stack up, and then I can watch them all at the same time, and it was um, awesome. Uh, yeah. Sean, what are you watching? I, I also am in the Game of Thrones. I think it's very great. Uh, I tend to watch a lot of comedies, you know, so I like uh, uh, Parks and Rec a lot. I like uh, 30 Rock. Um, I like Archer. Uh, always no, sunny. Archer's funny. Uh, Community, Big Bang Theory, um, and one that's dead now. But I, but I, I've listened to a lot of your podcasts. I don't hear enough people mention this. But Party Down, which yeah. is deceased, was just amazing. Um, I really, 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 really miss that show. Um, so I, I tend to watch more comedies than than dramas. It's harder for me to watch dramas without sort of thinking about how I would do it differently. Right. You know, whereas comedies, even though I spent a good five years trying to get into comedies, you know, is, you know, I, I know Bill Prady who co-created Big Bang Theory and I went to, um, you know, when I had time last year, I said, can I spend a day in your writer's room just to see what it's like? And I, and I drove there and I was like, I am going to get a joke <laughs> into this show. I just won. And I spent all day and I couldn't get one in. And, and, and so as a result, I think I, you know, I admire what those people do and I mm-hmm. tend to prefer to watch comedies usually. Please give a hand to tonight's panelists, Amy Berg, Cheo Hadari Coker, and Sean Ryan. Thanks to everyone here at Nerdist Industries and Meltdown Comics, and to 826LA and Dan Byrne for doing our theme song. Good night, everyone. Now leaving Nerdist.com.